Good morning. All right, let's go ahead and begin with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to come together and study your word. We ask that your spirit would be with us today to enlighten our minds as we talk about the resurrection today, that we can understand uh, more clearly uh, the power of the resurrection and how we can connect back to you to experience the eternal life you have for us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number 11 in our quarterly, The Wonder of Jesus, and the uh, title for our lesson today is The Power of the Resurrection. And why don't we just jump right into our discussion. We accept the historical fact that Christ came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and rose again. We already accept those facts, yes? So why did he rise again? What gave God or Jesus the right to leave the tomb? What gave him the right? The right. Why was he able to leave the tomb? I mean, he came as our substitute... He came as the one who became sin, who knew no sin, the Bible says. Why was he able to leave the tomb? He had within him life original, was not from anyone. And that life that was divine could not be killed. Yeah, divine life did not die. That's true. So um, there's no question about that. So maybe we should say, why was his human life able to leave the tomb? Well, he had completed his work and provided for a healing opportunity for mankind. Oh, yeah, I like that perspective very much. I like that perspective very much. Um, you know, what, what traditional answers have you heard to that question? Historically, uh, through Christian teaching, when you hear about Christ leaving the tomb, what, what answers have you historically heard? Why was he able to do it? His sacrifice was a pleasing aroma to God, and therefore God resurrected him to bring him back to intercede Okay. The payment had been made. Yes. Okay. He was he was sinless. Okay. I think by his resurrection, <clears throat> without his resurrection, we have no hope. Yeah, and we're going to get to the whole hope thing because it's in the lesson for today too. We definitely want to talk about that. There's no question we wouldn't have any hope if Christ didn't rise again. But is that necessarily true though? Doesn't it depend on your model? I mean, isn't there a model out there that says? That sin required, because you know the, the wages of sin is death. The day you eat, you will die. Uh, if you sin, the, the penalty for sin is, is eternal death. Isn't there a model that says that? And therefore, Christ came to take our penalty so we wouldn't have to. And therefore, he died the eternal death, some people will say. Yes? Well, then as soon as he left the tomb, well, that payment's no longer made. He's not dead. If the payment is eternal death, if that's what the payment is, eternal death. As soon as he leaves the tomb, the tomb's empty, that payment's no longer made. So, wouldn't our hope be in the fact he didn't rise because our payment's made? Well, do we want if to that's, be in the tomb forever? Well, but see, that's, you know, this is, the, this is the logic, if you're following me. If our problem is we have to pay the payment of our life if Christ didn't pay it for us, And the payment isn't that we all die for three days and then rise again. The wicked die three days and then are raised again. And for those who accept Jesus, they can be translated and don't die for three days. You see, we don't say that. We say, if you don't accept Jesus, you die for all eternity. And Yes. And that Jesus can save people because he died for them what they don't have to die for themselves. That's what we say. At least in some models, don't we? But did he? 
Did Jesus die the second death? Revelation 20.14. Somebody read Revelation 20.14 for us. In death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. That's good. The lake of fire is the second death. Did Christ get thrown in the lake of fire? No. Um, Revelation 21.8. Somebody read that for us. Revelation 21.8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So there's that fiery lake of burning sulfur again, the second death. Did we see any fire coming down and consuming Christ at the cross? No. Is that the same theon that is? Yes, it is. It's the same theon. It sure is. Um, not Not at the cross. Not at the cross. Yes, correct. No, yeah. So Jesus didn't die in the lake of fire. In fact, he died when the fire was hidden from him, if you understand the fire being God's presence. It says in Revelation 14 that the, that the fire is, uh, happens in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. Um, is there a resurrection from the second death? No. no. Did Jesus rise again? Yes. Did he die the second death? Hmm. Does the first death destroy a person's individuality, their identity, or just their body? Just the body. Does the second death destroy their individuality, their identity? Yes. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus speaking, he said, Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And the word soul, anybody know the Greek word for soul? Psyche. Psyche. And we get, of course, the English. Psyche. We still use the same word today for mind. Okay? Psyche is mind. Okay? So don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the body, but be afraid of the one who can destroy the body and the mind, the character, the individuality, your essence, who you are, the individual person. That's what we need to be concerned. Um, Does the second death destroy both? Did Christ have his individuality, his identity, his mind destroyed when he died on the cross? So he didn't pay the second death price, did he? No. Uh, hey, if you disagree, it's okay. This is a discussion. This is to, this is to flush out ideas here. Uh, you know, we, we need to look at evidences, though. Is there any evidence that Christ... See, we have been taught a certain line of thinking our whole lives. At least I was. I was taught my whole life, Christ died the second death to pay the penalty so I don't have to die it. But as we look at the evidences, the evidence don't support that. Particularly, I like this one here where Christ said that the second death is when the body and the soul, the psyche, are both destroyed. And you realize Christ did not have his mind, his character, his individuality destroyed at the cross at all. Additionally, if you look at the other differences between the wicked and the end in Christ, uh, the big one for me is that Christ died when love, remember, no one can take my life, I give it freely, when love overcame selfishness, the desire, the temptation to save self. He overcame it by giving himself. Whereas the wicked in the end are die overcome by selfishness. Totally opposite deals going on here. So I'm going to suggest to you that Christ did not die the second death, that he conquered the second death. And I, want, I really want you to think about changing your entire mindset about this whole idea that Christ didn't die or pay a penalty of the second death, but he confronted death 
and conquered it, destroyed it. 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. It says, This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. See, that's not saying he paid the death penalty. It says he destroyed it. He conquered it. He overcame it. He eradicated it. Now, which do you like better? He paid the penalty of it, or he actually destroyed death? Destroyed it. Oh, that's much better, isn't it? That's what Paul says. Destroyed death. You notice we don't teach that? Because we have distorted concepts about God, about his law, about the nature and character of sin, about what God needed to do to save us, we have been stuck in a Reformation theology of penal substitution, rather than the gospel that sin is a, a violation of the principles that life is built upon, the violation of love, and God came to restore us back into harmony with his original creation. Christ came to do that. How can a church leadership and everything be so wrong for so long? Hey, it, 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 talk about leadership now. Ellen White was a leader in the foundation of the church, yeah? She, she shared these same views. But you're just talking oh, about Oh, yeah. yeah. And she said, just because a position is held by our leadership for many years does not prove our position's correct. Yeah. Truth loses nothing by close investigation. Truth can afford to be fair. And so we can closely investigate and change our understandings as tr- and truth unfolds with time. Do you have any quotes from her of the second death like this? That's how she believes the second death? Uh, the second death as? That, that Christ didn't die the second death. Do you have any quotes from she her? She never says he did. But she does say he experienced what the wicked will experience in the, second in the end. And how do we understand that? The, the agony of being separated from God's love. Yes, and how do we end it? So what did, so what, how were they similar and how were they different? God acted the same in both places. What does God do to Christ at the cross? He withdrew from him. And gave him up to reap the consequence of Christ's own choice. And what was Christ's choice? To die. To, die. to, lay, down to, to lay down his life, to give his life freely for us. And the wicked in the end, what does the Father do to them? Gives them up to the consequence of their choice. And what was their choice? Save themselves. Exactly. So they both experience from God the same thing. God gives them up to the consequence of their choice. The difference, though, in, in the individual person, so both of them have the similar experience of experiencing what God does to them both the same. God gives them both up to the consequence of their choice. But did they both choose the same thing? No. No. Christ chose to act in love and give himself in love. The wicked choose to hold on to selfishness. And thus, Christ dies. Tell me true. Did Christ die wanting to run and hide from his father? Or did Christ die longing to see his father's face? The wicked in the end. Do they long to see the father? Or do they beg for the rocks and trees and mountains to hide them from the father? And they're running from him. Okay? Now, the father gives both up to the same, but they don't want the same things. Did... Christ died trusting in his Father. Into your hands I, I commend my spirit. I trust you, Father. Do the wicked die in the end trusting the Father? No. no. I mean, we could go down a long list. The Father treats them both the same. They, he gives them up to what they have chosen. Christ has chosen to give himself in love. The wicked choose to hold to lies and selfishness. And thus, the experience that they actually experience... Christ died because the Father hid himself from Christ. 
The wicked die when the Father reveals himself fully. Just the opposite, isn't it? Yeah. It's really kind of cool. Okay, how was Jesus able to leave the tomb and not violate justice? It really depends on how you understand justice. If justice is a legal system that requires legal penalty, and penalties must be paid, if that's your idea of justice, then Christ had to die that second death in order for justice to be met. But if he died the second death, then he can't leave the tomb because then the penalty is no longer paid. Because the, the second death is eternal death, loss of existence, loss of identity, loss of soul or psyche, as Christ said in Matthew 10, 28. That's the second death. So if he was going to pay the second death, he has to have his psyche destroyed, his mind, which didn't happen. So that whole model falls apart, doesn't it? The whole vault just collapses. So how can he leave? How can he leave justly? Yes. Uh, in James two twelve and 13, James is telling us to speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is God's justice. So, I'm with you. Mercy is his justice. Justice, as we talked about before, is defined by the law of the ruling authority, yes? In other words, justice is defined by which law it's built upon. What's the law of God's government? Love. The law of love. So justice in God's government is always justice predicated on love. It's not our human idea of justice. It's the idea of love. So if you had a child, and we've used this metaphor many times, if you've had a child who disobeyed your home rules or law to not mess with the, the medicines in the cabinet, and they think it's candy, they disobey you, they eat some of the medicines, and they've overdosed themselves, what would justice require you to do in that situation? As they're laying there convulsing with the overdose because they disobeyed you, is it, is it justice require you to get your belt out and beat them? I mean, you must inflict appropriate penalties for their disobedience. Does justice require you to idly stand by and say, you're going to die because you disobeyed me and disobedience requires death. Does justice require you execute them? If justice is predicated on love, love is the law, what will love require you to do in that situation? Intervene to save your child, right? Isn't that what justice is? Justice, when justice is based on law, is doing what's... Now, if your child is overdosed, there are certain laws in, in operation here called the laws of health. So in order to save your child, can you save your child outside the laws of health? No. Whatever you do is going to have to operate. You're going to have to restore the laws of health and operation in their body to save them. So justice requires the law of love for you to act in ways to remove the, the violations of the law of health from their body, the poisons, the toxins that are, that are disrupting the system, and restore in the healthy operation so that life can continue. Isn't that what the law requires? Have I lost anybody? Okay. So if we think about this in, in light of the, of the problem of sin, God created the universe to operate on what law? Okay. And what does that look like as far as life goes? How does the law of love connect to, to life? It's what keeps life going. Say it. It's what keeps life going apart from... Give me some examples of how we see the law of love in action in life. Giving. It's the law of giving or beneficence. 
Okay, good, good. See, 1 Corinthians 13, love is not self-seeking. So it's, if it's not self-seeking, it's other-seeking, outward-moving, and thus it's giving, it's beneficence. And you see Christ saying, greater love has no man than he give his life for a friend. No one can take my life. I will give it freely. Yes, you have a hand over here. Yes. Uh, mine's kind of an off question. Okay. Um, from what you've been describing, you seem to say that God is also bound by laws just as we are. Is that true? I mean, if he's the creator of all of everything, is he still bound by his own law? What's the law of love? Where does the law of love come from? But did he implement it and enact it? Or does it come from who he is? So is he bound by his own personhood to be who he is? Is that an external force acting upon him? Or is that him being who he is? Okay? So the law of love emanates from his very personhood. That's who God is. And thus, as God creates, he creates all things to operate in harmony with the law of love because God is love. And so this law is a circle of beneficence. And you said the water cycle, the oceans give waters to the clouds, rain over the lands, forming the lakes, rivers, and streams, flowing back to the ocean, completing the never-ending circle of giving, which brings life to everything. When a body of water separates from that circle, no longer flows, stagnates, and everything in it dies. Okay? You give out every breath you take carbon dioxide to the plants, and the plants give back oxygen to you. If you say, I don't want to be part of the given thing, I'm going to hold on to my carbon dioxide, you can't have it. Well, the only way to do that is to stop breathing and to die. This is the law of life. It's the law of love. So, and I could go on to many, many, many examples in nature that show this circle, and you'll see it everywhere in God's creation. The never-ending circle of life is the circle of love, is the circle of giving. This is what life is designed to operate upon. Sin is the breaching of that law. Sin is no longer giving but taking, self-centeredness, self-promotion, self-exaltation, self-first, taking without giving. There is actually a sea in the Middle East that receives water to it. It takes, 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 but it lets nothing go out. What's that sea called? The Dead Sea. Think it through. This is, I mean, there's, there is in nature, God is, it's interesting, it's even called the Dead Sea, Okay. To teach us, okay, when you take and don't give, you die. This is the law of the universe. Okay? So when we understand this, then we can understand Christ came, took upon himself our infected condition. What, what are we infected with? Okay, sin. Let's put it in more layman's terms. Selfishness. And the emotion most closely attached with selfishness is fear. Fear and selfishness, those things are infections of sin. That's what our hearts, we're born with this. Do you know how natural it is to look out for number one? Do you have to actually try to look out for number one? No, it's just automatic. And it, and it results in alienation, harm, cutting yourself off. If you actually acted on every selfish impulse you had, think, I, mean, I don't know if you've ever taken the time to think what your life would look like if you acted on every selfish impulse you had and you actually did what those selfish impulses were impu- uh, leading you to do. Do you know what your life would look like? Not much, because you wouldn't have much life. Look- you, you wouldn't live very long, but there are people who live this way, and you can look around and see them. Do these people have healthy relationships? Or are they isolated? They're isolated. They cut themselves off from all channels of blessing. They are miserable and unhappy people. They truly are. There's no joy, there's no health, there's no happiness in this. Thus Christ came, took upon himself our condition, and overcame it cured it, eradicated the infection. How did he do it? 
by loving all the way to death? Was he tempted in his own human experience with feelings that were tempting him to act to save himself? In Gethsemane. What was, what was going on in Gethsemane? Did he have powerful emotions? And if he followed his emotions, would he have gone through the cross or away from the cross? Away. See, he was tempted like we are. It says in he- Hebrews 4 that he was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin. And James says that we are tempted and drug away and enticed by our own evil feelings. He took our condition, but unlike us who give in to those feelings, he overcame every time the emotions came to act in self-interest he overcame and gave himself in love freely instead. And thus, he rises again because he conquered the infection that brings death. He destroyed the element that, de- that destroys us. He purged selfishness from the experience. And thus, he was a new being that he wrought out by his own life experience. He rose again. But what about this whole idea of... I, I missed a whole section here. I just jumped to the end. Um, but there's a section here about the guilt and, the, and, and is, it just, is it just for God to kill or execute the innocent and spare the guilty? Does God act in those ways? I mean, think about human people. Would we even do that? Would we allow an innocent person to go to the death chamber for a guilty person? But we say God did that in this legal form. Now, would we allow a person to give their bone marrow to save somebody who's sick and dying? Yes, we allow those types of things uh, when it's a giving to save an illness, but we don't allow imposed penalties to be imposed upon people who are not guilty. And so this whole construct of, of sin requiring imposed penalties makes God out to be this arbiter of evil rather than arbiter of good. And Ezekiel leads us away from that. Ezekiel 18, starting in verse 17. Starting about talking about the man who is righteous. He, he, the man who is righteous, he withholds his hand from sin and takes no usury or excessive interest. He keeps my laws and follows my decrees. He will not die for his father's sin. He will surely live, but his father will die for his own sin because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was uh, wrong among the people. Yet you ask, why does the son not share the guilt of his father? Since the Son has done what is just and right and has been careful to keep all my decrees, he will surely live. The soul who sins is the one who will die. The Son will not share the guilt of the Father, nor the Father share the guilt of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the wicked man will be credited against him. But notice the soul, the psyche. It's not the body of this one who sins that will die. It's the psyche, the mind, the character, the personhood. The individuality ultimately dies from sin. In the end, Christ did not die that death. Christ overcame the infection that results in the destruction of our individuality, the destruction of our soul. He cured it. Yes? I have a question, but you can answer it later. What kept him in the grave then for three days, and why, like... I guess we haven't answered why he was able to rise, but after we... Yeah, we did answer why he was able to rise. Because the law of love was perfectly restored in his experience by what he did. And the law of love is the law of life. There was nothing to hold him. He was free. He took upon himself a condition that was capable of tempting to self-interest. But he overcame it, cured it, purged it, healed it, and thus he was free to rise. Do you have any insight as to why it was three days? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, there's a reason. Was, was Christ's death and the need for him to come for his earth-born children only? 
the universe. Okay, the whole universe is caught up in this controversy. And it started in heaven. And what was the first evidences that God gave to exonerate himself before the angelic host, as Lucifer was waging verbal war, polemo, it says, there was war in heaven, polemo, politics we get from that, a political war, a war of words, a war of misrepresentation, a war of lies. As, as you, Lucifer is waging this war in heaven against God, misrepresenting him, drawing hearts and minds away. God answered not with just words of his own, but he began to give evidence. What evidence did he give? The creation of this planet. Okay, the creation of this planet. And on day six, he said, let us make man in our image. Let them be fruitful and multiply. And as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come into unity and create. Now this cool new creation, two separate beings come into the unity of love and are told to create and bring forth new life in their image before sin. And if they would have been faithful, brought kids into the world without sin, the universe would have looked in and seen what? Adam and Eve slaving, enslaving, abusing, lording over their kids? Or Adam and Eve giving constantly of themselves for the welfare and health of their children? And the universe would have looked in and said, I get it. God didn't create us to wait on him. Him, he's giving of himself constantly for our good. And so, after all this evidence gives is given, what did God do immediately after creation on the sixth day? The universe, you've heard the allegations against us. You've seen the evidence we've just given. Now, universe, take 24 hours aside. I rest my case. Think it through for yourself. No pressure, no coercion. Weigh out the evidences. Love cannot be coerced. Love cannot be forced. I want you to love and trust me. So I'm giving you freedom. And the Sabbath exists as evidence that with God there's never coercion. There's never pressure. We're always free to come to our own mind. It's proof. It's weekly proof that with God you're free. It's awesome when you understand the Sabbath in the context. And so that was week, week one. Sabbath created to think. And every week we, we are told to come apart, rest, put our things away, contemplate these issues, let our mind elevate beyond the earthly. And then man fell into sin. They infected themselves with Satan's principles. As soon as Adam sins, he says, it wasn't me, it was that woman you gave me. And the universe looks in and goes, ooh, I wonder if God is like Adam, willing to sacrifice his creatures to protect himself. You see, the lesson book is now marred. They don't see a selfless God, they see a selfish being now. Wow, the, 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 the issues are not cleared up anymore. Not only are they not cleared up, we have a whole host of new issues now. Because God told Adam, in the day you eat, you will die. What's that look like? Does that look like execution at the hands of an angry and wrathful God? Why do they die? What's happening? All these questions have to be dealt with. So Christ comes as the second Adam to finish the work the first Adam failed to finish, number one, to reveal the truth about God. In John 17, he says, Father, I've finished the work you give me to do. I have made you known. I've revealed you. I've done what Adam failed to do. But number two, I've taken upon myself Adam's liability, what Adam has done to this creation, how Adam has damaged and destroyed and infected this creation with an element that will bring death. I've taken that liability, that disability. It says in Isaiah, he took our infirmities upon him. And I've cured it. I've overcome it. I've fixed it. I've healed it. I've restored it. I've regenerated it. I've restored in this creation your perfect law of love because I have lived perfectly in love from birth to death. And love is restored in the creation and the life of Jesus Christ. Now that is awesome. So he not only revealed the truth, he healed the brokenness that Adam brought upon it. And thus, thus you ask why he remained three days after just like the end of creation week, he gave the universe time to think for themselves. The incredible, most awesome event in all universal history, the life, the death of Christ at the cross, he spent time in the grave giving the universe time to think. What do you think would have happened if, first off, 
an hour after he dies, he resurrects and zooms to heaven. What would the angels have been doing in heaven? What did they actually do on Sunday when he, when he zoomed to heaven? Rejoice. There was partying going on. Man, this is rejoiceful. What do you think they were doing the 24 hours while he was in the tomb? Yes. Reflecting, thinking, contemplating, meditating. You see, he wanted the heavenly host to really understand and comprehend. And they would have missed an opportunity for learning if he would have just zoomed right back to heaven. So he waited for them to meditate, for them to think. And then he zooms to heaven. And they rejoice and have a great party. And they see, and there's evidence for this. In Revelation, every time we get the spotlight turning on heaven, what are the angelic hosts doing? They're saying, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. You see, they now understand. He is worthy to have all the power of the universe. Why is he worthy? Because he's demonstrated he will never use that power to protect himself in self-interest. I mean, think about it on the cross. Did he have power to stop him? I mean, he could have just with a thought wiped him out. But even with all that power, he doesn't exercise that power in self-interest. He's worthy. Because one of the allegations was, if you remember the context of what happened in heaven, once Lucifer alleged that God was arbitrary for taking Michael into councils, Christ into councils that, that uh, Lucifer couldn't go into, God had that meeting in heaven and said, well, Christ is equal with me. He's one. He's one. He's divine. And Lucifer then says, now we have a ruler appointed over us. Our freedoms are taken away. We have somebody who we have to answer to. Remember? Remember all this? Okay? And so Christ demonstrates, no, I'm not, I would never use my power to take your freedoms. And so the angelic host realizes, yes, he is worthy. He is worthy. He's, it's safe. Yes? Sorry, one more thing. I'm not trying to get you off the subject, but it seems... No, questions are good. I'm glad you're asking them. ...surrounding that we're watching on this had to wait for so many years for Christ to actually, like prove his point, you know, and so I don't... Two, two things. One, if somebody were to lie about someone you care about, and you know it's a lie, but nobody, the people around you don't really know this person very well, um, does it take time to expose a liar? Mm-hmm. Does it take time for the truth to work its way through? Mm-hmm. It does. Number one, it takes time for the lies to be exposed. It take, took time for Satan to expose himself. And it took time for God to reveal himself, number one. Number two, though, is we don't really know how time operates in heaven. That's very true. We don't know. There can be time dilation. In other words, a day with the Lord is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. It could be we're in the sixth day in heaven. It's been six days since man fell into sin from a heavenly perspective. Now, with our own theory of relativity, if you travel at the speed of light, time slows down. You know that. Theory of relativity, physics, if you ta- travel at the speed of light, time slows down. So if you travel at the speed of light for a year and you come, you know, you could, you could have all this time going by and you come back here and everybody you've known has been dead for a thousand years. And for you, it's only been a day. Because time, I mean, this is part of physics. So we don't know that it's been a long time for the angels. It could be six days, actually. Six days. In we don't know. Universes, Pardon? In the surrounding universes, possibly? Yes. It just I mean, seems like, like the, with the flood and all, there's so many things that I guess could, Christ's actions could have been misrepresented. But I guess that's a different subject. Well, why did he make they the earth on a cycle like we have and the rest of the universe is almost a thousand years then? We, we don't know exactly how time works. And by the way, the uh, universe that we live in 
the theory of relativity applies, that as we speed up our travel through time, uh, through, through space, time slows down. That's not in another universe. That's right where we live, the physics of our universe. Um, that's actually been demonstrated uh, where they took these atomic clocks. An atomic clock is a, a clock that runs by an oscillation of an atom. And so they can actually get down to the hundreds and billionths of a second. Okay, I mean, it's really just way out. It's not just a second. They can take it to billions of a second to, to time. And they took an, two atomic clocks, set them exactly Kept one in, uh, on, the, on the ground at an airport. They put another one in a jet, one of the fastest jets, and flew it around the world as fast as they could fly the thing. And then they compared the two clocks. And the one that was on the jet was a few microseconds behind the one. It slowed down because of the speed. It had sl- the, the clock had actually slowed down in time. So this has actually been proven in physics that, that happens in this universe. And so when you think about um, angels traveling and how fast they travel from heaven to here, okay, is time moving the same for them? No, it's interesting, isn't it? Okay, just something to think about. <laughs> so I leave I leave for possibilities that everything isn't exactly like what we experience it outside this earth. So, okay. Um, man, time's just zooming, isn't it? Okay. Yeah, time in this class is different. It moves at a different pace, doesn't it? Okay. Okay, let's go to Sunday's lesson. Oh, by the way, the power of the resurrection is the power of love over selfishness, the power of truth over lies, the power of God's methods over Satan's methods. It's the very power of life over death itself. And that's what Christ did. All those things, he overwrote, overruled, overcame all those uh, principles of Satan in his very life experience. So Sunday, when Jesus rose from the dead, many people who died, loyal to God, rose... From the dead at the same time. You're familiar with this, right? Biblical, biblical tells us, Bible tells us this. Consider what would happen today if one of the local cemeteries, the graves opened, and people who had been dead for years pop up out of the grave and start walking around the community. Weird. They make movies about stuff like that. Do you think that would have any impact on society or the community? Yeah. I mean, just, just let your mind contemplate that for a minute. Somebody you know that has died maybe 20 years ago, and you're at the VM, and, and here they come around the corner with a shopping buggy. <laughs> Would it freak you out? Yeah. Now, let's take it a step further. Can angels appear in the form of men? Yes. Who went uh, to pull Lot out of, the, out of the city of Sodom? And what form were they in? And then Hebrews, I'm just giving you biblical evidence. We're just not speculating. We've got Bible evidence there in Genesis. And in Hebrews 13, too, it says, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for as so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Now, I'm assuming that strangers we're entertaining here in this text is a form of men, yes? I mean, it probably would have said, don't forget, because I don't think most of us would forget to entertain an angel if it was actually in the form of an angel, would we? No. So this is people in the form of men, but these are angels. So the Bible gives us clear that they can appear as a form of men. Can Satan's angels appear in the form of men? Yes. Yeah, sure. Yeah, one, of, one author thinks, so I'm going to read you a passage from Desire of Ages 746 about the cross. If thou be the Son of God, they said, come down from the cross. Let him save himself if he be Christ, the chosen of God. In the wilderness, the temptation of Satan had declared, if thou be the Son of God, command that the stones turn to bread. If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from the pinnacle of the temple. And Satan, with his angels in human form, was present at the cross. The archfiend and his hosts were cooperating with the priests and rulers. The teachers of the people had stimulated the ignorant mob to pronounce judgment against one upon whom many of them had never looked until urged to bear testimony against him. Priests, rulers, Pharisees, and the hardened rabble were confederated together in a satanic frenzy 
religious rulers united with Satan and his angels, they were doing his bidding. Now, I put all that together to you. What do you think might happen if the graves open and the dead start walking? How would you know whether they were really, you know, resurrected people from the past? Which clearly happened. Lazarus was resurrected by Christ. There's others in the Bible. How would you know whether they were angels pretending to be men, satanic angels pretending to be men to deceive? Probably by their work. Yeah. The, is there a deception coming that we believe in the future? Yeah. Is there an angel of light coming who's going to pretend to be Christ? Will he even make it appear that he can raise the dead? Yes. Yeah. Do you think that uh, the satanic angels will be able to impersonate people very, very well? Sound of the voice, the nuances, the secret little codes that were passed between you and the private person that you know. Would they know those things? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But instead of spending your time trying to figure that out, we need to have the armor of God and the Holy Spirit guiding our mind and stay really close to Christ. And he'll, he'll keep us. Well, yeah, I, I just put this forward because I expect this to happen. And people who haven't forethought this... Well, can you see there just to be a... I mean, what, would, what will the media do with something like this? Do you think this will be on every airwave? And do you think there will be a, uh, a societal frenzy over this? And there becomes a herd mentality, if you know what I mean by herd mentality. It's swept up with the enthusiasm of everyone around you. And so I just want people to f- think this through because there will come a time when we will have to stand singly and alone. When everyone around us and people we even care about are getting caught up in the delusion and might be saying, come on, this is the coolest thing. So yeah, of course, the whole armor of God, absolutely. But as we forethink it and anticipate it happening, won't that in a certain way give us a little hedge of protection to not just get sucked into something that we hadn't anticipated? Yeah. Yes. I was going to say, we already go into a frenzy when we think we see a, the face of Christ on a wall or a tear coming out of a statue and everybody flocks to that spot. So, not even real things. So, when it becomes real, I'm sure it's going to be uh, more difficult. And doesn't, it say, doesn't the Bible say if it were possible, even the very elect would be deceived? Mm-hmm. See, it's going to be very strong and very masterful and very powerful. So, I, I just suggest that the miracles and things like that aren't a good barometer to determine who to trust. We need to think that through very, very carefully. Yeah. In page 129 of the Teacher's Quarterly, it says, Of all the doctrines and teachings of Christianity, the idea of the resurrection of the dead has been one of the most intense and faith-demanding teachings. The dead rising, some after having been gone for thousands of years, how could that be? How could anyone really believe this? How can we believe it? The answer, however, is simple. We believe it because the Word of God promises it. We believe it because Jesus promised it. We believe it because without it, we would have no hope whatsoever. Indeed, without it, our faith would be meaningless. Without it, Christ's first coming would have been a waste of time. And who among us believes that? So, um, how could we believe in the resurrection? And what do you think about the reasons cited here? What reasons do you have for believing in the resurrection? Wait, which one? When Jesus was resurrected and people were resurrected? That one and the one to come for us. Because they're all really connected, aren't they? Well, wouldn't it be almost the same reason as, I mean, not to the same extent as Christ, the reason Christ was raised, but we're all going to be, I mean, like, I don't know, I think 
God knows our hearts. I don't know what I'm trying to say. Well, you don't have to think about your individual personal resurrection, just the fact of a resurrection, that resurrection can happen. God's words tells us. God's words certainly tells us it can happen. No question about it. I like that. I like the evidences of Christ raising Lazarus, Christ raising the little girl, Christ raising the little main son, and of course Christ himself rising from the dead, which we have the testimony, uh, the eyewitness testimony of all the witnesses. So the historical accounts are very reliable, I think, as we look at this. So we have evidence for all that. And so in other words, we're not told to believe simply because the Bible says it, but the Bible actually gives us accounts of, of evidences and eyewitness testimony, which is more than just declarations. It's more than just a book that says, you know, there is a resurrection. You see, I, I find, well, in the Bible, there's generally two types of evidences. There are the proclamations and claims evidences, like 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Set by itself, it's just a claim. But then there's the evidence of action. God in Christ on this earth and his life lived out is a different type of evidence than just saying God is love, isn't it? And what gives 1 John 4, 8 power and meaning is ultimately the life of Christ. That gives it power and meaning. And so, as we look at the resurrection, those events that transpired, those historical events, give much more meaning than just the description that re- resurrections occur. Is that, is that true? Okay. Um, but what about this, this reason here? Here's one of the reasons we believe in a resurrection. We believe it because without it, we would have no hope whatsoever. So that's why we believe it. Think that the logic through. Do some Muslims believe that if they die in a terrorist attack, they will be immediately rewarded in paradise? Does that belief give them hope? Well, then we should believe that, too, because it's a belief that gives hope. No. No. You see the problem with that kind of belief. See, that reason is not a good reason for us to believe in a resurrection, just because it gives hope. Well, it's based on the reliance of a feeling, and feelings are not anything to do. Now, I'm going to throw something else at you and see how you handle this one, this whole idea. This is out of First Thessalonians 4.13. It's been a source of certain consternation for Adventists for many years. And it's been used as a text to prove that when you die, you go to heaven and be with God. Read you the quote. First Thessalonians 4.13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive and are left to the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air forever. Did you notice what it says there? That when he comes, he brings with him those who have died in Christ. Those that rose from his resurrection. It didn't say those who were previously resurrected. It didn't say that. It didn't say those who were raised to life at Christ's first resurrection. It didn't say that. It actually said those that we believe. Because the issue here in the context, remember, Paul was dealing with the first century church. And as the church was aging, many of the believers, they were expecting Christ to come back quickly and get them from the earth. And people were starting to die in the church. And they were starting to get concerned that their loved ones who have died, they weren't going to see anymore. So Paul writes this letter and says, don't be afraid. Because we know that when Christ comes, he's going to bring with him those who have died in Christ. And he's going to raise the dead and we're all going to join together. How do we understand this? Bring with him those who have died with Christ. Most people believe that 
people are dying to go to heaven right away. That's what they believe. Do we believe that? Should we believe that? Hmm. Well, then how do you reconcile that with the text after that that says the dead in Christ will rise first? Exactly. How do we reconcile? That's a great question. Um, Pardon? I think it's pretty consistent. You look at the various translations, it comes through that way. Yes. Yes. So they're they're not the ones who are already awake in heaven, the ones who resurrected earlier. Yes. So we have a difficulty here, don't we? But there is an answer. It's so cool. I mean, it's just so cool. (laughs) But, But we want to challenge our minds to bring harmony to all the scripture, don't we? We don't want to leave these little inconsistencies back in the back of our mind. And obviously we know the text that uh, the dead know not anything, that uh, Christ described death as asleep, the Bible describes death as asleep. So how does he bring it with them? In my, in my office I have, a, I have a laptop computer, and my laptop top computer actually is, is connected via wireless internet connection to a server. And I have electronic medical records, and I'm seeing patients, I'm typing in all this information on my patients, and, so, and it's automatically being backed up on a server in another part of the office. Now, if you take my computer take a shotgun to it and blast it, and then you take the pieces of the door and fire and melt it down, you could say, you have killed my little laptop. But I could go out and get some new hardware, buy a new laptop, connect it to my server, download all that information, and you could say, I have resurrected my laptop. Because it's, it's still all the same unique individual data, all the same information is there. I mean, it's uniquely my laptop again. Is it not? Okay. This is the hard drive right here. Each one of your laptop hard drives right here. Everything you do in your life is immediately backed up on the heavenly server, but the Bible calls it the heavenly record books. What's a server? It's a recording device. Okay, the heavenly record books are backing up your individuality, your identity, your mind, your character. If someone destroys the body, remember Christ said, don't be afraid of who destroys the body. If somebody destroys the laptop, don't worry. Be afraid of the one who can destroy the laptop and the data on the server. Okay. Be sure. Be afraid of the one who can destroy the laptop and the soul, the psyche, the mind, the character, the individuality. That's the danger. And so, at the second coming, he brings with him the heavenly server with everybody's individuality, data, identity. Downloads it back into new bodies that he's resurrected, and thus they awaken to life again. Now, is there any other persons who might have seen it this way besides me? Well, one of the founders of our church. Happy to see it this way. In 6th Bible Commentary 1093, I'll read you this. It says, Our personal identity is preserved in the resurrection, though not the same particles of matter or material substance as when in the grave. The wondrous works of God are a mystery to man. Now listen to this carefully. The spirit, the character of man, is returned to God, there to be preserved. In the resurrection, every man will have his own character God in his own time will call forth the dead, giving again the breath of life and bidding the dry bones live. The same form will come forth, but it will be free from disease and every defect. It lives again, bearing the same individuality. So that friend will recognize friend. There is no law of God in nature that shows that God gives back the same particles of matter which compose the body before death. Is that not saying what I just said? Okay. So now we can understand Christ does bring with him. He brings with him those who have died in Christ. He brings their identity, their individuality, their unique personality, all safe and secure with Christ in heaven on the heavenly server. And he downloads them into the new resurrected bodies, and they come to consciousness and life again. Could that be in the mind of God? In the mind of God, she says, possibly. I, I don't know exactly what the heavenly recording devices are. 
Um, there may be some other type of way to store the information and data. I don't know how it's done, but I do have confidence that it is being done. God knows everything. Yes. So you are saying at this text in First Thessalonians 4, when it says that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep and bring in their psyche or their personality, not the body. Their individuality, yes, their identity, which is resting. Now, think about my server. The same analogy applies. Once my laptop's destroyed, the data on the server is just sitting there static. It's not doing anything. It's not having anything change. It's, it's, it's asleep on the server, waiting for it to be downloaded back into a laptop. It's not communicating it's, with the It's not communicating. It's not doing anything. It's just sitting there. Okay, so there's no consciousness. There's awareness while we're in the server. Okay, but, but we can have confidence and security that our unique personhood is safely secure with Christ in heaven. So it's not beings coming with him. No. It's our character, our individuality, our personhood. Anybody else have a problem with it? <laughs> well, write the reference down and go check it out for yourself. 6 BC, 1093. Yeah, yes. Well, he creates a new body, but he doesn't create a new character. That's exactly right. Is this a real mystery to anybody? Do you expect a new character when he comes back? No, but I didn't expect these DNA. to be... I thought it was beings coming with him that he had resurrected earlier. I didn't think that it was a collection of sleeping well, personalities. Think about, well, th- well, think about... Think about uh, we're just putting stuff on you've really always believed. Haven't you always believed that the righteous are going to raise... But their bodies, not just their minds. Well, well, if they, how about if they raise with no mind? We have all these. I mean, that's complete. When you raised, when he raised Lazarus, he raised his body and his mind. He just didn't raise his body and leave his. Okay. Mind. So where is the individuality kept? As it, it, see, right now you have actually individuality kept on your mind right now in your hard drive. But when that brain decays and the worms eat it, where is your individuality now? Well, yeah, it's asleep. Let's where? But where is it? It's not in those in that tissue anymore. It's right. It's safe with Christ in heaven. I have a problem with that. I have a problem with you saying that all he's bringing is that and not bringing bodies with him. You understand what I'm saying? Bodies are in the first and third. What about First Thessalonians? He brings with him those who sleep in the grave. Yes. Yeah. Oh, the reference that he's talking about? Six Bible commentary. So anyway, it's just something for you to think about. But this perspective, and I'm open for, if you guys got some more data, some more information, some more facts, some more perspectives, hey, I'm open to have this change. But right now, this seems to be the most harmonious view of how we can put all these pieces together. Seems most consistent with everything we believe. Yeah. Well, he's bringing Enoch, Moses, all those that were resurrected. They're coming too. And they got a body. Yeah, they do. Yeah, some, some of those do. In fact, we're told in Revelation that some of these are the, the 12 thrones of the elders, the 24 elders sitting on the thrones. Those are humans that have already been raised or never saw death like Enoch and Elijah. So there are some coming back that way, but that's not the ones I think they're talking back here in, Reve- in Thessalonians because the context of Thessalonians is Paul reassuring the believers that their loved ones are going to be resurrected, the ones that have fell, fallen asleep since Christ's death, uh, resurrection. Yes? Maybe you said it, but I didn't catch you. The, the people who were raised with Christ were... He was raised. Did they go to heaven or did they... Yeah, they went to heaven. Mm-hmm. Well, they did. They actually, they, they did both. They stayed a while on earth and, and witnessed, it says, but then they were translated to heaven as the first fruits of, uh, of his resurrection and power over death. Yes. So they did both. Okay. Let's, uh, let's look at Tuesday's lesson. Uh, somebody read the first paragraph of Tuesday's lesson. Starts, how could such... How could such an outlandish belief as the resurrection of a dead prophet spread through a pagan empire like that of Rome 
if it had no credence? Why would a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors against all odds invent such a story? And if they did invent it, how did they come to believe it so strongly themselves that they were prepared not only to forsake family and friends to defend it, but to give their lives for the sake of the one they proclaimed as the risen Savior? Okay, again, think about this logic train here. Think about this logic train. He's using the argument, whoever the author is, whoever wrote this, that because they were so committed to it that they would give their lives, therefore it must be true. Because they certainly wouldn't be committed to something that they'd give their lives to that isn't true. But what about Jim Jones? What about terrorists? Terrorist, Jim Jones, David Koresh, were they committed to something so strongly they'd give their life for it? Did that make it true? No, and what do you think it does for the Gospels when we use arguments like this or the one about hope we just talked about because it gives us hope, it must be true. When we use arguments like that and put forward the Gospel, do we do the Gospel justice? No. Any thinking person sees right through that and goes, that's ridiculous. That's a horrible reason to believe. And then it undermines the actual veracity and credence of the real Gospel message that has power to heal and to save. So, you know, we need to bring our, our arguments and our, our, our presentations in the bounds of reason that are consistent. Yeah, it is true that the truth does bring hope, but because a belief brings hope is not a reason that it's true. Because you're going to have hope in false beliefs. Okay. And what about if there were Christians, conversely, we took this, this logic the opposite way, that there are Christians who knuckle under the pressure of death and, and uh, recant their belief in Christ. Does that then make it false? And have there been people who've done that? You see, the truth is established in its own sake. It's either true or it's not. Our faith or confidence in it or lack thereof doesn't determine whether it's true. How would you say it then? These people that were giving these testimonies, but they have said, we've seen him rise. Yes. See, I wouldn't have any problem if they just said their behavior, their actions demonstrated their conviction in what they believed. No question about it. But the way it's worded and the way it's presented as, because they were convicted and because they believed to the point of giving their life, then it must be true. Those two things don't really add up, do they? No, but there. But clearly, those those guys did believe what they were what they were promoting, and the reason they believed is because, as you said, they had evidences and they shared those evidence with us. And then we believe not because they believed; we believe because we've examined the evidence for ourselves. Just like the woman at the well and the people that she went and witnessed to came back and said, "We no longer believe because what you told us. We have tasted, seen, and heard for ourselves. We've examined the evidence for ourselves, and now we believe." That's what's supposed to happen. Yeah. So I want to close with this today, I think. The power of the resurrection. Uh, see if this description out of the Zara of Ages, page 675, uh, gives us insight into the power of the resurrection. Starting out with a quote, uh, quote from Christ. I am the vine, you are the branches. Christ said to his disciples. Though he was about to be removed from them, their spiritual union with him was to be unchanged. The connection of the branch to the vine, he said, represents the relation you are to sustain to me. The scion is engrafted into the living vine. And fiber by fiber, vein by vein, it grows into the vine stock. The life of the vine becomes the life of the branch. So the soul, dead in trespass and sin, receives life through connection with Christ. By faith in Him as a personal Savior, the union is formed. The sinner unites his weakness to Christ's strength, his emptiness to Christ's fullness, his frailty to Christ's enduring might. Then he has the mind of Christ. 
The humanity of Christ has touched our humanity. Our humanity has touched divinity. Thus, through the agency of the Holy Spirit, man becomes a partaker of the divine nature. He is accepted in the Beloved. This union with Christ, once formed, must be maintained. Christ said, Abide in me, and I will abide in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can you uh, bear fruit except you abide in me. This is no casual touch, on-off connection. The branch becomes part of the living vine. The communication of life, strength, and fruitfulness from the root to the branch is unobstructed and constant. Separate from the vine, the branch cannot grow and cannot live. No more, said Jesus, can you live apart from me. The life you have received from me can be preserved only by continual communion. Notice where we receive our life. Our life, our health, our regeneration, our uh, development of spiritual fruits all come by connecting from him, receiving it from him via the Holy Spirit's transfusion flowing from what Christ has achieved, making it in us. Then it says this, Abide in me and I in you. Abiding in Christ means constant receiving the Holy Spirit, a life of unreserved surrender to his service. The channel of communication must be open continually between man and his God. As the vine branch constantly draws the sap from the living vine, so we are to cling to Jesus and receive from him by faith Listen to this, what we receive. The strength and perfection of his own character. You see, he developed that character. Then it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. As we trust him, we actually receive the transfusion of Christ's likeness, downloaded. When you look at the computer metaphor, we get downloaded into our hard drive, the new operating system that Christ worked out while he was here on this earth. And it's no longer I that live. And thus the new covenant, if you don't like that download, then let's take the new covenant, Hebrews 8. I will write my law in your heart and mind. Well, what's writing the law? It's restoring the character to Christ's likeness, restoring us to be like Christ. And where do we get it from? We get it from what Christ has achieved for us, connected to him by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes what Christ has earned and makes it uh, reproduced in us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that when we fell into sin and infected ourselves with the principles of selfishness that go against the very law of life, the law of love, that you did not abandon us to die in our sickness, that you came yourself and took this sick condition, our infirmities upon you, to heal, to cure, to regenerate, to fix the problem, to win us back to trust. And Lord, we see a wonderful, beautiful God that you have revealed. And we open our hearts and trust you and ask that you will now send your spirit to download your perfect character of love, to take your law of love and reproduce it in our hearts and minds, that we can go out living the life that you would have us live as lights shining in a dark world. We pray in your holy name. Amen.